Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It is wonderful to start off our radio surveillance this morning with William Lee of Citigroup. You bring such a rich heritage of Citigroup economics, working with Willem Bowder. Let me go broader global before we um, tear apart what we observed yesterday. Catherine Mann and OECD, I believe, are looking for 2.9% global growth, down from three. I believe that's a recession in most textbooks. Is it? Well, when you start to get to trend, and trend is closer to 2%, we're bordering on that because the measurement error is just huge on global GDP. The big problem is we have global slowdown, global productivity slowdown, global investment slowdown. These are the pillars of sustainable expansion that we are now missing. I love to tell Willem Bowder when he's wrong. That doesn't happen very often. You guys have been so out front in right about global slowdown, global tepid growth. What's the distinction of Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX to the global trade? I'm going to guess it's non-trade or flat trade. Exactly. Trade volume used to grow at 6 or 7%, and that was the source and engine of growth for all emerging markets. <clears throat> Everyone said, oh, is China doing... It's not just China, but China and the entire supply chain all into South Asia and, 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 and the rest of the world, that was going to, to export stuff to the advanced economies. Now with trade volume going down because it slowed down in domestic uh, advanced economies, you have a, a collapse in the emerging markets. And, and the hardest thing for investors to do now is to invest in emerging markets because you no longer have or to... Or... You have to look for domestic stories. The hardest thing to do is be Janet Yellen. Should she focus on the domestic economy, all of the three dissenters, or can she take an internationalist approach of this slow growth? Tom, the radio audience can't see how much gray hair we've got, but one of the things that I was doing at the, at the board... Excuse me, the radio audience knows how much gray hair we have. Continue. <laughs> when I entered the board, uh, right after my PhD, my first assignment was to work on the international sector of what's known as the Furbus model now. That was 1980. Um, the board has, and the, the Fed has always been globally oriented, and, and we have always looked at what's going on in the world. What we're not doing, what we're doing now that's different, is that we're letting the world run U.S. monetary policy. That's been a shift in the way <clears throat> monetary policy is being conducted between Chair Volcker right. and Chair Yellen. And that shift, I think, is not for the good always. Yes, we should consider the rest of the world, but we shouldn't let the rest of the world dominate in deciding what's appropriate okay. monetary policy for the U.S. Let's dive into the press conference yesterday. And for those of you that heard every word of it, thank you so much for listening to, to Bloomberg from everything from Eric Schatzker's question that led to the debate on product discussion, rather, on productivity, to just the sheer confusion. There were, Billy, three or four times where Chair Yellen stated something of what we want to do, a prescriptive Fred, an out-front Fed, and then she came back 
a minute later or two minutes later and said, but we need evidence. Yes. I'm baffled. Help. I, not only are we baffled, but it is clearly showing how the Fed has lost its way. It's working without a rudder. And Eric asked exactly the question I would have asked. How can you, in this slowing economy where your forecast is slowing down, are you pushing up rates by several hundred basis points? Mm -hmm. and, you're, and you're telling us a normalized interest rate is one with a real rate that's near zero. And yet you don't see the inflation going up several hundred basis points in your forecast. Eric so, so that, I think, is, is caught Yellen to the point where she had to stumble and said, well, this productivity well as she went to her script which is to say we've got structural headwinds and we need to address the headwinds and that's the only thing she could rely on within the str struggle was the idea of vectors traditional economics is to set up a vector personified by chairman greenspan and the idea of a measured approach we've got suits and ties on fancy dresses we're organized we know what we're doing we're in control and then there's the idea of just let's get back to normal and let the market and the system work it out. What would be the consequences if the dissenters win and we get to one or two or three rate increases? For the macro economy, absolutely nothing because between zero and 150 basis points, the cost of capital is still going to be negative or zero. Mm -hmm. Everyone is incentivized with the cost of capital as much as they can be right now. And where's it led us to? Nothing. Nothing. What, we, what, what I think everyone is concerned about is that, my God, 25 basis points and a vector of another 100 basis points over three years is going to collapse the, the, the U.S. economy. There's no, but what it will do is remove that distortion that's preventing firms from investing right. resources adequately and in the right places. Shorted markets throw off markets. Vice Chairman uh, Fisher entered the press conference briefly. He made a cameo appearance. I don't know if you saw that, where Chair Yellen discussed ultra-accommodative shifting to modestly accommodative. It's like we're doing adverb economics. I mean, Matt Winkler, the emeritus editor-in-chief of Bloomberg News, would say he'd be starts, Matt's bow tie would be spinning, as we all were yesterday, over adverb economics. That's what we've come down to. And, and even worse, with adverb economics, we don't have a framework. We are, we are data-dependent in an adverbial way. And that's ridiculous. We, we, we used to be tied with full employment, maximum employment, and okay. price stability, and a framework to get there. Steady monetary policy, correcting market distortions. Right. That was monetary policy. Now we are adding to market distortions and not going in a steady fashion. We're letting events and immediate data drive future okay. monetary policy. And now, folks, my dumb question of the press conference. I, could you imagine me giving Chair Yellen a, a question at the press conference? It'd be a frightening thing. Bill Lee, what's the difference between evidence and data <laughs> dependence? Help me here. And, and that's the struggle that, that I think they're coming with, which is to say we don't we, we get a lot of data and we are not consistently reacting to it. We're acting to some sorts of events like the, the China devaluation. We're reacting to fears, but we're not reacting in a okay. consistent framework. Help me with here. And folks, this is a cottage industry in the United Kingdom. It's called economic epistemology. It's not that much tra trained in the U.S. Bruce Caldwell is legendary at North Carolina, but there was a guy built years ago, Mark Blaug, out of Yale and then over to LSE and Leuven, and I had the honor of interviewing him a few times. And Professor Blaug set up the philosophy of economics, and the heart of it is ex post ex ante, <laughs> an institution that gets out front 
versus an institution that reacts to evidence and data. The historians, including one B. Bernanke, would say by definition they're ex post. Where is this idea that we can get out front as a central bank come from? The heart of the SEP, right, the, 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 the projections of the FOC members is to say we need to base policy on looking forward, our ex-ante presumptions of where the economy is going. To say that we are driving monetary policy by looking at data realizations, which is exposed, Beautifully explained. that's ridiculous. But come on, it's ridiculous, but I heard her say four times in the press conference, I'm making that up, folks, maybe two times, maybe eight times, that she needs to see evidence, evidence. which is by definition exposed. We've never had more Latin. We've never had more Latin on surveillance than we are right now. Which is it? She's been driven into this evidence-based world because the brainers and the other doves have said the costs and benefits are asymmetric and we need to make sure right. that we don't see downside evidence and we are not seeing upside evidence so we cannot do okay. anything consistent with ex-ante upside. I don't, I don't want to get you in trouble with the general counsel at Citigroup or with Mr. Corbett but uh, the basic idea here would you suggest Vice Chairman Fisher and John Williams non-voter would have dissented as well? They would have absolutely dissented and in fact I think Fisher is tying his hands behind his back so he doesn't punch her out. No, that's what he did in my interview with him. He had his hands behind his back so he wouldn't punch me. Bill Lee with us at Citigroup. How about a little bit of surveillance inside baseball? We do different things here. You going to talk Red Sox again? No, I'm not talking Red Sox. <laughs> First place, Boston Red Sox. John Tucker does certain things. Yu Yen, our producer. Colin, our producer. Ken Fellio, global technical director. Michael McKee does certain things. He dredges up ancient documents. Quote, it was agreed that the next meeting of the committee would be held on Tuesday, November 13th, 1990. The meeting adjourned. Greenspan, Corrigan, Angel Bain, Boykin, Hoskins, Kelly Loware, Mullins, Seeger, and Stern. Mr. Melzer of St. Louis attended the meeting, one of the giants of a siren. Of economics. So Cohn is a secretary and economist, Donald Cohn. Ted Truman, I believe, was in the room. Mike McKee, what happened on October 2nd, 1990? Well, you had four dissents that day, um, which was uh, unusual. It's a, it was the last time you had four dissents. Uh, Governor Seeger and Angel dissented, uh, Governor, uh, President Boykin of Dallas and President Hoskins of Cleveland. For those of you old enough to remember those names, uh, they disagreed with the, uh, apparently, because the specifics weren't recorded, but they disagreed with the idea that they should be uh, lowering interest rates. Take us to one William Lee on this. Dissent. Uh, it is very unusual to have three dissents. Obviously, it is almost uh, unheard of to have four, but I've been going back. I still am. I'm going back through all the minutes of the previous meetings where we had at least three dissents. I can't find a time when you had three people dissent in favor of higher rates. Uh, this is this is obviously a strong message to the chair that uh, there are some people concerned. Absolutely. And in fact, it's even more shocking in a consensus-oriented Yellen Fed where you have three dissents. Because Yellen's modus operandi has always been to try to forge that consensus even before the meeting such that she can have a clear sense of backing from the rest of the FOMC. I think she differs from the, the chairs of, Vol of Volcker and, and Greenspan because they were personality-driven in the sense that they said, I think this, what do you guys think? 
Chair Yellen goes around asking, what is it that is on your mind, and how can we forge a consensus together? I think that's her strength, but it's also been her weakness, because the consensus that has driven the policy decisions has been consensus driven by Brainerd and the Doves on the committee, and I think the Hawks have finally said, we're putting our foot down. Now, remember, the history of the Fed is that the board has always been a more dovish-leaning part of the FOMC, and the regional Feds have always tended to be somewhat more hawkish, because they, I think, are in closer in touch with markets and people who are doing business. And the business people say, we need yeah. clear market signals. And, we and, cannot have Fed distortions and, of the sort we have now. And like Wayne Angel being the example of that from another generation. <laughs> Wayne was, I was there when Wayne was there, and, and I must say he was quite a supply-sider. So he was quite a, an extremist. But nevertheless, he was very market-oriented. And this consistent message from Wayne and and and, and, uh, and a lot of the, the regional Fed governors, uh, 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 presidents now is that the governors on the FO, on the board have really lost touch with what is needed in markets, which is clear signals. And you cannot have clear signals when you have distortions caused by zero rate policies but for eight years. And to go back to something that Tom said, or, uh, well, it was actually uh, Fran uh, said uh, earlier on surveillance TV, should we cut them a break in the sense that we have not seen monetary conditions like this or an economy like this since the Great Depression. So they're working from uh, a playbook that is 80 years old and still um, and may not be completely relevant because of uh, conditions. So the fact that there are disagreements is not something that should be unusual. Absolutely, Mike. But the conditions that we're seeing and the ones that, that Chair Yellen's highlighting are low productivity, low investment, and slow growth. Those are not the things that monetary policy can address because, as we all know from our textbooks, monetary policy cannot create growth. You can only move it around. You can borrow it from the future by lowering rates or you take it from yeah. your neighbor by depreciating the exchange rate, but you can only set the conditions to allow market forces to work and it's structural policies that really get growth and enhance productivity. Billy, very quickly, Eric Schatzko had to dash to an airplane yesterday after his killer question. He cracked the door open in the press conference. How much credibility leaked out of the room? In fact, the press conference was an example of how credibility just disappeared in a heartbeat because Chair Yellen was flailing for answers. As, as you quite uh, you know, rightly mentioned, it, it, words like data-dependent, evidence-based, how is it that we are letting a world of, of ex-post data drive future policy? How is it that we're letting past events drive where futures are going when past events well. are ad hoc? chosen in an ad hoc <clears throat> way. Exceptionally valuable. I'll be blunt. We would kill to get you and Willem Bowder, Stephen Englander, whatever, all on the table at the same time. Bill Lee. He's not going to kill you. He's with Citigroup. Just, just wonderful, wonderful. This is fun. Michael McKeon, Tom Keane. This is Bloomberg. John Manley is Wells Fargo's chief equity strategist, so he's the guy who was sitting around on the trading desk yesterday watching the Fed de decision come in and telling people, well, here's what you do next. And clearly, John, the advice for most strategists was buy, uh, because the Fed has put off raising rates. But I wonder, uh, how long can that knee-jerk reaction be justified, given the fact that there is so much data between now and December and uh, we really don't know where the economy is going at this point. 
Uh, now it is the Fed exactly, and I think that's part of the trick. I think it's important to realize the Fed will raise interest rates just as soon as they think they can without adversely affecting the economy. As the economy gets stronger, it needs less stimulation from the Fed. Uh, it can deal with higher interest rates, and the market can deal with higher interest rates. I think the trick is to wait. The Fed is trying to get a sense that the economy has enough momentum that they can ease off the throttle. They're not tapping the brake. They're easing off the throttle a bit. Are you, when you look at what the Fed did, do you pay more attention to the fact that uh, they're saying, well, we're getting closer to an interest rate increase, or to the fact that they lowered the number of interest rate increases they're looking at for 2017 from three to two? Well, as with anything a human being does, it's always the best guess. What are they going to do in the future? I think, uh, to me, the most important thing is they're thinking about it. They, they realize the risk involved in raising rates too quickly. I think there's a muted risk of raising them too slowly, but that's something we can deal with later on. Uh, I think they're going to be data dependent uh, in the same way I'm data dependent when I get off an airplane. I know when it's supposed to land, but if it's late, I don't get off early, and if it's early, I don't get off late. Uh, they're going to have, I think, ample justification right. to raise rates. And I think at some point that's John, where were you yesterday? Come on, John Manley. I mean, you were hanging on every word Michael McKee said yesterday afternoon. Of course. Data dependent is so 2015. It's evidence. Evidence, we need evidence. Evidence is the new word. I, it's what I learned but, yesterday. I'm an old-fashioned guy, uh, and this proves it, Tom. Your research note is brilliant, and you absolutely nailed what we observed yesterday. You talk about the idea and the risk that a central bank could lose control. Mm -hmm. Did the central bank lose control in that press conference yesterday? I don't think so. I mean, um, you know, controlling a press conference and controlling the economy are two different things. And uh, I think one is more difficult than the other, and it's not the obvious one. Um, I think that uh, the Fed still is in control, or the economy is in control. You know, they only have so many tools. They can't make us do things. So it's always a question of pushing or pulling money to us or from us. And that's inherently going to look like they don't have absolute control, because they never have absolute control. On balance, though, I don't think the economy is running away from them, and I don't think it's plunging too quickly. I'll say they're in control for that. In control of the economy, to, to what extent? Um, as you say, uh, they, they only have some tools, so mm -hmm. can they only maybe put a floor under things? They can't create growth. That was the point that Bill Lee was talking about. They, they can't. Uh, they, they, can, they can't make us buy a car or build a house or start a factory. All they can do is make the money we use to do those things seem cheap or expensive. So it truly is leading a horse to water. It, it, it's an imperfect control because this is a free market economy. We, we do not have planned growth. We don't build so many steel mills or flour mills or whatever because the government wants them. We build them by supply and demand. The Fed, using interest rates, using the pressure of money in or out, uh, tries to push that along in the way they want to, and then it should run by itself. You don't constantly right. need a Fed to push things. Let's state it right now. What is the level of bullishness that you are? It's, it's, I'm still, my head's spinning off the press conference yesterday. Let me just make something clear. Should I acquire shares this morning? I would, yes. It, it's radio, John. You can ask why. <laughs> you can give us longer answers. He's being cautious. Well, I, yeah, I, 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 I think you should. I think, you know, it depends how much you own, obviously, individuals, what you want to do. I think the markets can move higher from here. And I think there's a chance that people finally get excited about markets. And that usually <laughs> happens before bull markets end. There's a break exclusive right there. Michael McKee and Tom Keene, we're trying to digress away from the Fed. 
for like, oh, six or seven minutes totally. John Manley with us with Wells Fargo Asset Management. John, if I had a given company and they take 62 cents on the dollar down to gross profit, they take a very ample 32 cents on the dollar down to EBITDA or operating income, net income, is it exceptionally rich, 20 cents on the dollar, free cash flow is ginormous as compared to net income, that would be a stock that would develop a lot of cash that would have to make a decision, should they invest or should they give it back to shareholders? That company would be Microsoft. Is it financial engineering when a blue chip multinational goes, we don't know what to do with our cash, let's give it back to shareholders? I don't think it is. I, I think it's a legitimate investment decision. Uh, obviously, I'm not speaking in, about the specific company, but when a company is generating tremendous profits and doesn't see any opportunity to invest, they shouldn't invest just because they're supposed to invest. They should find the best place for that money, and that can mean buying into their business. So they're, uh, I, I don't think they're necessarily trying to manipulate stock prices. They're trying to buy into an attractive business that just happens to be their own. My point, Mike, is there are many apples and many many apples microsoft cash 53 63 77 86 97 113 billion one-tenth of a trillion dollars michael mckee yeah well you know apple has the same kind of cash i know john you don't want to talk about individual companies although if you'd like to insult any of them please feel free it'll help our ratings uh but you seem to be taking issue with the conventional wisdom that the only reason companies are deploying cash is to keep the stock price up so the CEO gets paid. Well, the CEO wants to get paid, but that's how the world works, or at least that's how it works in America. Uh, we're all profit-motivated. We all want more for ourselves, or many of us do, let's put it that way. Uh, and I think that's what drives the economy. That's what's made us a success around the world, and I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think that what you have to look at is corporations are looking for the best way to benefit their shareholders, ultimately. Now, the CEO thinks he or she's going to get paid if he or she does that. Hopefully, they align close enough. Uh, I think what ha- has to happen... You know, the old saying for field of dreams, build it and they shall come is backwards. When, when you're a corporation, they shall come and then you build it. Uh, you know, I don't see the point of adding to capacity when capacity isn't needed. And if they, it, the demand has to come to them, and that means eventually all recoveries in the economy, all successful extended recoveries come from the consumer. We want to buy more things. Corporations decide they have to expand capacity to provide us with those things. That's, I think, healthy. Until that happens, why not just invest in your own very profitable business? Well, how do you get from here to there? How do you get to the point where the economy is generating more demand? Well, you know, we're all concerned. Because the company's got to pay me more for me to want to spend more. Well, the company, you know, you, you've got to feel more comfortable about your situation, depending on what you're buying, of course. But, you know, if, you, if the, the, the job situation looks better, certainly better than it did seven or eight years ago, if the housing situation looks more secure, well, there's your income, there's your wealth. Uh, you're going to feel a bit more confident in spending something. And at some point in time, being one of millions mm-hmm. of people, you start to spend more. You, you, you don't hunker down as much as you did before. This is how it, it's always worked, as far as I can tell. It's a degree of fright that goes away uh, that matters. And I think that's what's happening, I think, after eight or nine years of being hunkered down for for good reasons, I think American consumers are starting to feel better. If I want to acquire shares, mutual fund, ETF, folks, individual securities, I don't know if some of you knew this, you can buy shares of individual companies. 
John Manley, where do I want to be and where, what do I want to avoid in terms of sex? Well, I think one of the changes in the last six months in my mind has been mid-caps. Uh, historically, they have a habit of outperforming on a risk-adjusted basis, and I think part of that's because they're sort of the small caps that got big. You have a certain screening process, I think, that went on here. They also have liquidity characteristics somewhat like the large caps, but inefficiently like the small caps. So I think it's naturally a good place to be. However, there's been no earnings growth for the last two years. For mid-caps, large caps, small caps, earnings growth has essentially gone flat. Uh, I think that's changing. I think one of the things I pick up in my little graphs is that earnings expectations are starting to rise. They're back to the old highs of right. years ago for the large caps, but new highs <clears throat> for the mid-caps. Is that earnings expectations, is that really about a nominal GDP liftoff, which means you get a revenue pop, which works down the income I, statement? I think it is. I think it's also a little bit of return to more normal oil prices rather than depressed. I think the comparisons yeah. for oil gets easier. Uh, and I think there is some uh, greater demand from the consumer that uh, pushes things along a little bit. I, I'm, as I said earlier in the in the show, I'm sort yeah. of old-fashioned. I think when the economy gets better, profits get better. Mike, Mike, let's do this. We've done this before, but let's do an update here for Michael McKee. ExxonMobil, with all the carnage in oil, is down 20% from its peak of a number of years ago. I mean, that's all. You would have thought the world had come to an end. Well, we've talked about how the majors are are able to leverage all of their different uh, business lines to keep profits from falling a lot. But I guess, John, the question is, uh, do you still want to look at energy? Because these guys are, at least on the the major caps, these guys are so good at what they do and managing their earnings and have a lot of business lines, and maybe it's time to look at getting back in. Or is energy still, you know, a little bit radioactive because you don't know what's going to happen with oil prices? Well, I think you, you, you make a very good point when you phrase that question because oil and oil stocks aren't necessarily the same things in how they trade. I, I, provided oil doesn't collapse, and I don't see the reason for it. I think we've already had a normal overshoot. Uh, I think the large integrated international oils are attractive. Uh, I think they uh, may not be as cheap as they were a few months ago, but when I look at high-quality stocks, the kind I'm going to want to retire on in 5 or 10 or 15 years, I know what I want to own. I'm not sure I want to buy some of them because some of them are not particularly cheap. Energy, the high-quality stuff, is still relatively cheap versus other high-quality companies. That makes it attractive to me, and I think that's going to keep these stocks going, doing pretty well. And you and I know that oil prices go up and down. At some point in time, and it may be three or four years from now, we'll be worried about prices that are too high. Uh, maybe it's longer than that. Maybe it's shorter than that. But oil prices go yeah. up and down. They're still <clears throat> mostly down. The stocks are decent values. They're what I want to own, and that's, that's enough evidence for me to buy. Well, did you hear that, Tom? I think we made news there. Uh, John is actually planning on retiring, which is different from you and I. Well, you can't, John. You, you can't. Thomas, Thomas. Don't, 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 don't worry. It won't happen. I'll Good. Thank you. We were wondering how you do myself. that these days. Now, John Manley. We lose our best guest. You can't do that. John Manley, thank you so much. Wells Fargo, don't retire. Get to work. Uh, always interesting and really important comments there about the lack of enthusiasm that are observed in equities. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more 
at findyourindependentadvisor.com. This is a joy. Hans Redeker, we usually speak to from London where he's distracted. He's flown in from London to be with Morgan Stanley in New York, possibly to sedate Ellen Zentner. Did you have to hold her hand yesterday during a press conference? Zentner has been so right, it's sick. And yet that was a confusing press conference. Did you and the Morgan Stanley team have to calm her down? Is we what are we going to delay to 2018, Hans? I guess no, nobody needs to calm down, Ellen. Uh, she's a very confident and uh, person and a very uh, successful economist. But uh, uh, the point uh, we take is that um, we have here a central bank who, obviously, by its communication, uh, wants to hike rates. Against yeah. that, you have a finding where you wonder why should be there a rate hike. So um, we have. Uh, the economy currently running at about 3%. We think that economic um, activity in the fourth quarter is going to uh, uh, reduce to something like 1%. Now, if mm-hmm. you take that finding, it is going to be an increasing headwind for the Fed to deliver. And therefore, we uh, stay with our opinion that the Fed is not going to hike this year. That is an out-of-consensus call. What we link into that is our call on the U.S. dollar. We think that the U.S. dollar in this environment is going to decline between 4 to 5% index-wise. And uh, what this means, too, is for the next uh, couple of uh, months, you have a very positive risk environment, simply because the market is priced for a Fed. That is more than 60% probability. When data are now coming in weekends in the United States, you have an automatism in the marketplace where the Fed is going to be repriced. That means the curve on the front end is going to flatten and that is going to lend support for risk appetite globally. You yeah. see that how emerging markets were reacting over the past uh, two days and there's more to come. Right. Mike, I guess that's the evidence we need that Morgan Stanley's uh, with a few other houses in outlier calls. <laughs> we just got evidence. Well... You've got um, a, a Fed that uh, basically said there's nothing wrong with raising rates right now, given the data that we have. We just want to get some confirmation. So if nothing changes, you really have to forecast a sort of decline in the economy to say that they won't raise rates because they seem to want to. Yeah, that is uh, that reminds us uh, a little bit of uh, last year. So in last year, they uh, came out and uh, were very clear that they wanted to hike uh, rates at the end of the year. So we came into a kind of type of calendar guidance. And uh, then the question is, uh, how are they going to react uh, to uh, upcoming uh, data weakness? And I think uh, that... Uh, the uh, likelihood of uh, them going to act in December should be not put uh, higher than 40% at this stage. But the market is um, expecting much more. And um, we should as well think about uh, the quality of communication yesterday in the, in the Fed's uh, press conference. So what you have is um, that uh, the central bank seems to look at, uh, at uh, various, uh, into various uh, uh, situations we have on one hand, uh, we have uh, where the capital markets are currently trading, we have where the economy is, and then we have as well to look into the structure of economic growth. So especially this uh, situation where you have labor market strengths, look at the initial claims today, but uh, you have an undergoing uh, decline in, in productivity, and I guess that that's a very good reason. So when you have a lack of investment activity, it's very difficult to develop uh, productivity, and that is a key element here. And, Mike, when she mentioned productivity off Shasker's question yesterday, the yen strengthened. That was a real point where the yen moved. 
what evidence do you have that the economy is going to be in a position where they would hold? I mean, what are you looking at? What should uh, investors look at um, between now and December? So what you, um, what you uh, need to look at uh, as uh, uh, when, you, when you have an uh, economic viewpoint, you have to always look uh, at uh, early indications in the economy. And uh, the best indication you can get is credit. And then just look at uh, the credit indicators we have seen now that uh, consumer climate uh, is uh, surprisingly weak. Look at the University of Michigan indicator. And uh, the investment side, that is really um, the, the troubling spot in this economy. The investment side uh, doesn't, doesn't develop. And I think there's a very good reason for the investment side uh, not to develop. There's, over, there's overcapacity globally. And I think that the Fed has to learn one thing. We may talk about uh, global cost mm -hmm. when it comes to wages, uh, local cost when it comes to wages, but we have to talk about global inflation because of overcapacity well, of Asia. Let's come back with that, with the OECD marked on yesterday to global growth. That's been one of our themes as well. Hans Redeker with us with Morgan Stanley. Thrilled to have him in our studios today as he visits New York from uh, London. Hans, I'm behind I'm so damn far behind for the year. I need to create some alpha, and I can only do it with brutal moves in foreign exchange. Where can I make money as I go to year end? Where will be the move within this ridiculously quiet market? Okay, I can uh, make you uh, two offerings. Uh, offerings. Uh, one is uh, uh, for the very short term, so the next uh, two, uh, two uh, months, I would uh, sell dollars. I would go into high beta. I think that uh, the... Uh, uh, positioning of uh, the market in high beta is still underrepresented. Of course, we have seen a lot of flows going into this direction. But when you look mm -hmm. into how uh, a normal portfolio allocation should look like, then uh, this uh, is still underrepresented. So uh, buy emerging markets, uh, sell the U.S. South, dollar. South Africa, RAN, Brazilian real, commodity-based? Well, I mean, you need to look at the story, and then you may have as well to add a little bit with, uh, or you can play with momentum a bit. So the story, where's the story good? The story is good in Indonesia. The story is good in Brazil. The um, disadvantage is there that uh, a lot of the move had been there already seen, and then you have others where people are taking a risk and uh, and uh, jump on a momentum trade, and that is currently happening, uh, as you mentioned, uh, in South Africa. But I mean, you have really to recognize that the risk profile there is a completely different one. And then, of course, uh, the bigger exception to the rule there is uh, Mexico, where very specific, uh, different uh, well, uh, fundamentals and as well political uh, political uh, things are, are coming in. Right. If I look at dollar Indonesia, okay, folks, this is not something we mention. Mike, doing this two or three times a week, we mention dollar Indonesia, right? Yeah. It's a it's a twenty nine percent move back to the decade long trend of years ago. When you say you want to be in Indonesia. Is it a structural call for that big move back to once what was, or is it back to some resistance, which would be, say, a, a quarter of that move? No, first of all, you have to look into the reform process in the country itself, so it's a very positive fundamental story behind it. So the country is improving towards the better. Then uh, secondly, you need to look into uh, what is uh, the outlook for commodities uh, for the next uh, two months. And I think that the outlook for commodities in the next two months is on the positive side. So Indonesia is going to benefit from that side. We have seen significant inflow via fixed income related funds yeah. into Indonesia. And that had been not fully reflected into exchange rate strengths. This is a story. It's amazing, Michael McKee, within the sophistication that Mr. Redeker works in, the difference in the chart of dollar Indonesia versus yen Indonesia. 
It's well, like two uh, different planets. The uh, dollar yen pair. Which one drives the trade right now? And the reason I ask is because then which one is going to drive emerging markets? So first of all, um, what uh, you can get currently is the impression of that uh, you have uh, three major funding currencies around, right? And uh, that is because of central bank policy within Europe, within the United States, and within uh, with uh, on on the Japanese side. Now on on Japan, I would make to sing um, a very big. I would like to make a very big statement. So we had been bullish on the Japanese yen for three quarters. We called the year 2016 the year of yen strength. And uh, it is now time slowly to turn the boat. And I think that the yen is uh, as well traded in line with uh, the global inflation outlook. It is uh, traded in line with uh, the local inflation outlook in Japan itself. And I think that uh, in Japan itself, there's a, there's a change taking place. While we have uh, um, talked so much about uh, the Fed, we actually should talk about the BOJ. This seems to be a, a central bank uh, moving one step further. This is called yield curve management. So they fix a 10-year, and uh, they run right. as well as a responsibility for the short end of the market. And uh, the question then is, how do you fill this into a broader context, and what are the implications for the Japanese yen? The Japanese yen is uh, driven by, um, or had been driven in the past um, three quarters, by a significant decline in monetary velocity in uh, Japan. So when you look at uh, how much uh, central bank money had been pumped and you compare that to the credit in the country, you see a significant divergence. So monetary velocity is declining. Why is it that has to do with the financial sector? The financial sector distribution channel of central bank liquidity seemed to be blocked. You need to unblock this distribution channel. Various uh, measures are required for that. One is... The uh, yield curve management is a step in the right direction. Secondly, they have uh, to push uh, inflation expectations, for which I believe the MOF is going to come in. So you will have a much tighter coordination of policy between the MOF and the BOJ. And I think that the market has not woken up to that. And I guess concerning dollar yen, you have now to see the slow turnaround, the slow turnaround to the better. And I think that next year, dollar yen uh, should actually trade higher. And uh, that against the consensus view. Our analysis concerning positioning in the market does show that uh, the market is overwhelmingly long the Japanese yen. When I came over here to this country in November last year to promote the idea of yen strength, nobody wanted to hear about that. Now I'm here back again in the United States and I promote the idea of potential yen weakness. Nobody wanted to hear about it. Well, we do. <laughs> we, we're happy to have you in here. We don't make you feel bad and go home or anything. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not saying that, that people feel bad, but I mean there's a point of But discussion. it still, it still uh, doesn't get to the, kind of my question is which of the pair is going to drive currency movements in other markets? As I certainly have to look at uh, who is most significant or which currency is most significant uh, for funding purposes. And uh, there traditionally the U.S. dollar had played a major role. And therefore, you need to analyze U.S. dollar correctly to get uh, the rest of the bunch in, in good shape. So to be clear here, I don't hear a brutal move in U.S. dollar. You know, we had some love here a couple of years ago. Not like 2014. Yeah, yeah you think, uh, well, yeah. This, this, this brutal thing that was Trichet's uh, yeah. uh, way of arguing. Now, I think uh, that the European uh, Central Bank is actually in a, in a very difficult situation. 
Now you see that uh, euro dollar is going to um, basically just go sideways. Our call is that we are going to see 118 at the end of the year. Wow. And, uh, you know, the reason why I see that despite the situation in Italy, despite mm -hmm. uh, upcoming election uncertainties yeah. ranging from whatever, it is about there's a lack of euro selling. There's nobody out there who can sell euros. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, uh, uh, Hans, uh, Sterling, we've had some real outlier calls on this show. How do you frame Sterling one year or even two years out? I think uh, yesterday the OECD brought out a very important report basically saying near-term stabilization outlook long-term is, is negative. What it is is that um, the shift towards hard exit cannot be a good thing for Sterling. What's the scope and scale of that move? That seems to be the point. I, is our forecast is that in Euro Sterling we are going to see 92 to 94. We are currently today okay. trading 86 and uh, in cable. cable 124. So 124 by the end of this year. By the end of 2016. By the end Can of this. Can you give me the end of 2017? That is actually where we see that um, um, there is going to be um, there is going to be a, a situation of more um, uh, U.S. dollar strength, general stabilization of, of of many of many things. In in that year, I would focus on on euro sterling. So I think that uh, we are going to have a trading range between 124 and maybe 133. Very good. Hans Redeker, just fabulous. Thank you so much. With uh, Morgan Stanley. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. put your trust in matters investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of four trillion dollars why learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com